Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, a podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we talk to David Bender, second trombonist of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined, as always, by Nick Schwartz. Nick, could I do our first official shout-out, at least my first official shout-out? You go for it. You do you. I don't even know if you're aware of this. I don't know if I've told you this yet, but... I was checking out some of the stats of our, our last episode, and keep in mind, we've only put out 11 so far. I guess this is number 12. The last episode was listened to in 33 countries. There's that many countries? There's at least 33. Wow. I know that now. And we got such amazing feedback from Amanda Stewart's episode and such thoughtful feedback of talking about anxiety. And, mm-hmm. and, and I just have to say, like, this podcast has been therapy for for me in a lot of ways too and it's it's been a wonderful project during this time and the fact that so many people are supporting it just just means the world and it really helps us feel like there's a real community for this especially during this time you know i we when we had this idea you know we we started thinking about this probably about two years ago i would say but we certainly didn't expect this to happen and you know a bulk of our episodes have been recorded during the pandemic and I think for not just for ourselves or our listeners, but also for our guests, I think it's been really great to have a outlet to talk about things going on or in some cases not going on. And yeah, so it's been fun. So we, we see you Germany, we see you Canada, England, I guess the UK in general, Australia, Norway, Mexico, Sweden, just to name a few. We're going to be talking to some international trombonists soon. We call them international if they're not in America, international to us. But we're also happy to announce a new official schedule for the podcast. We will now have a new episode bi-weekly every Monday morning. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you download your podcast. And you can expect an episode every Monday. Mondays won't be so dreary anymore, Sebastian, because you'll have the trombone retreat. That's right. This episode of the trombone retreat is also brought to you by Houghton Horns. Houghton Horns deals Shires, Bach, Yamaha, Courtois, Greg Black, and is the exclusive U.S. dealer for tying instruments. They have a recently updated selection of Shires components, and you can also browse vintage and consignment trombones on their site. Have a free in-person or virtual equipment consultation with their team of professional musicians. There's a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping and returns on new trombones and mouthpieces, as well as multiple easy financing options on all inventory. Special offer to Trombone Retreat podcast listeners. Enter the promo code RETREAT1020 at checkout to receive $300 off your purchase of a new trombone from HoutonHorns.com. Enjoy our talk with David Bender. 
can get in the way sometimes. But then we got to hear the Moonraker laser again, so it was worth it. That's how you're excited uh, when the podcast starts. You get that pew! Pop, pop, pop. Very excited. Come on, you guys played Goldeneye, right? Oh, yeah. Dude. Oh, the, but wasn't the Moonraker like the worst only, gun? Only in multiplayer. That was like a crappy gun, wasn't it? it yeah, it, it, would, it wasn't very lethal, but it was, some, it was a laser, so it was cool. Did you have a favorite character to use? Oh, I always use the scientists. <laughs> oh, yeah, the scientists are good, man. <laughs> No, I, don't I was, know why that seems so fitting. I was I was always the anonymous, like, you know, civilian three, scientist two. <laughs> I'm gonna figure out some secret formula to to kill right. everyone. No, I just thought it was funny running around as a nobody. My favorite thing to do on that game after you've been playing for hours with friends would be to change it to to license to kill. Right, so like the second you touch someone, they die. And what was it slappers only? Like, so no guns. And so yeah, you're just you running play. around to try to hit people. And once you get really close and you're and your friend are trying to fight. You know, I know the type I of people it. that like slappers only. And uh, <laughs> it's not, I usually don't join those games. Well, well, you wouldn't have been invited to my sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> How do I sound, gentlemen? Sounds pretty sound good. Sound okay. Oh. <laughs> Nick knows that I like the bass tones in his voice so when he gets too far away from the mic you lose the bass I can tones get, i can get right in there like that i yeah, mean I was, oh. I was explaining to everyone the howard the howard stern voice you know that sounds i like both of that well you got to get as close as possible for that bass boost well, if i did that i gotta go right in my iso booth, booth like that you then can, you can't see me how does that look <laughs> well we already discussed that we're not using any video so that's okay you're like the podcast version of sia I'm gonna swim from the chandelier. <laughs> Maybe split the difference, and we're—I think it's good. I was gonna say, you guys talk about Goldeneye. I can almost taste the pizza rolls. Mm. Oh, were you a pizza roll guy for your sleepovers? Or bagel bites? Bagel bites, bagel bites, bagel bites good. for good. Anything pizza themed? Oh, pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening, pizza at supper time. When pizza's on a bagel, you can have pizza anytime. Yep. This is that rock. It had a bit of rock and roll in it. See, David, I imagine you grew up on like kale chips or something. You just feel like Dude, kale there chips were no kale there. chips in the nineties. <laughs> 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 no, I was I was thinking about your. I uh, never mind, never mind. No, please. I, I think some of your intervals were off. <laughs> <laughs> My God! Dude. It was okay. perfect. It was a really nice major arpeggio at the time. Pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening, pizza at supper time. It's like what you sang. It sounded nice. What did I? I mean, do you want to do like Shankarian analysis over my <laughs> over my 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 Totino's pizza or what? No, it's our bagel pizza's bites. on a bagel. You can have pizza anytime. See, I feel like I feel like maybe your pitch was more correct, David, but your diction and the, the overall mood of the <laughs> yeah. commercial. Oh, well, I'm a, I'm like a very accurate. I, I truly am. A, I'm a poor singer for some reason. I can't, I have a hard time controlling my voice. Very bad pitch. But you, you, but what about emotions? See, I got the, Oh, pizza in the, Oh, that, that. that's some, that's some Bob Seger right there. <laughs> hey, Michigan, dude. I know, man. That's why I brought it up. Hey, Eddie Van Halen. I didn't know he was from Grand Rapids. Was he really? Yeah, there you go. There you go. Ted Nugent. He goes on and on, man. Yeah, we'd forget about him. <laughs> hey, David. Yes? Good to see you. Great to see you too, Nick. 
you did it again. Oh, I, I see. It's a joke. I see. I see. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, we met previously, and, and I, I said, good to see you, David. And he said, oh, good to see you, Nick. And I was, just, and it, I was deeply hurt. I was deeply hurt. But then I realized it's classic. It was a classic David Bender jab. Mm. Purposeful Bindale. jab. Well, thanks for thanks for hanging out with us, man. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's good to have someone that we both know really well. It'd be it's going to be really cool to talk even more about some things we don't know about each other. As Nick and I always talk about, you know, there's a certain level of getting to know someone, hanging out and playing together, and 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 drinking or whatever. But yeah, this this is deep dive David Bender time. I know, I always associate you as as being from around the Chicago area. Did you always grow up there? Yeah, I was born in Evanston. Uh, so yeah, I was a Cook County Cook County lifer for 22 years. <laughs> So I was born in Evanston and lived there you know, with my parents until I was about seven, I think, and moved to a town called Glencoe at the north part of Cook County. And then until I was 18, then moved back to Evanston for Northwestern. So you're about as Midwest as, as you can be. Uh, I'm about as Chicago, Chicago Midwest as you can be. There's so many nuances of Midwest. Yeah, there are some, there's lots of debates, but. Are you only child? No, I have an older sister. What, what does she do? She is in digital marketing right now she's a freelancer oh very cool and your parents and i could be completely wrong i'm just checking my random memory are were your parents are your parents academics or did i make that up no my dad works inside a building in carnegie mellon oh, <laughs> but he okay. does not work for carnegie mellon in that way but he works for the a u.s government entity essentially called the software research institute which is administered by carnegie mellon but uh, he's not teaching in that way. But he's a okay. soft, software engineer. That's why he moved to Pittsburgh. And he was doing that your whole life? Yeah. Cool. Mom's doing? My mom is a researcher. When I was growing up, she worked for McKinsey and Company, which is a consulting firm doing primary research. For a long time now, almost 15 years, she's also been kind of freelancing, uh, doing primary research, mostly for consulting firms for competitive business analysis. So you grew up with some some pretty smart parents so what kind of did did anyone in your family have any sort of musical inclinations no not really i mean i think my dad was like a fan of music but i wouldn't say i mean let's just say that we had like five cds in the house that he would pull out on christmas or like a holiday and it was like the nigel kennedy four seasons and like best of beethoven and a flamenco guitar cd oh wow <laughs> so um and he likes steely dan that's i guess that's the one thing i got from him the flamenco is for the those crazy nights where you invite friends over for for wine exactly but uh, actually my sister and i can still sing the first track from that cd because you listen to it so often is there any way we could set up you guys singing that and we could layer it into the podcast dun 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 but, uh, we need your sister's line, though. <laughs> I thought that would have taken some coaxing, but it was just, he was just like right into it. Yeah, that that was, I, that was loaded right in the hopper, just straight <laughs> in there. It's like I thought you'd never ask. It's <laughs> always it's always playing. <laughs> <laughs> just that night, I can imagine you laying in bed, putting pillows over both your ears, like make it stop. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, people ask. Yeah, I w- I would not consider myself from a musical family. It just wasn't a big thing, and like my parents you know didn't they i you know bless their hearts actually they're huge supporters of the pittsburgh symphony now 
But at the time, I would not consider them like music lovers. You know what I mean? So you kind of developed that on your own. Yeah. When did you start really just getting into music? Were there certain things you like listening to growing up? Um, it's probably like in middle school, you know, like 12, 13. I really started getting into the Grateful Dead and Fish. I was, nice. big, was a big jam band fan. Nick learned this just a few days ago. Yeah, so I was I was down there and and I looked at your CD collection and I was like, ooh, I have this Fish CD. It's a, a ninety four uh, New Year's Eve concert live from Madison Square Garden. Is that right? Yeah, they usually do New Year's Eve at Madison Square Garden because I grew up as a big Fish fan too. Right. So we realized that our hearts are even more connected than they once were. Intertwined, they are like Avatar, the, the Avatar tail and the like the dragon thing. Like, um, <laughs> let's, put, let's push on <laughs> let's, was, let's like people hair. people listening at home you should have a drinking game for the awkward pauses after we make david uncomfortable it's not that you make me uncomfortable it's that that i could have a comeback but you guys give me so much shit for being a know-it-all or whatever <laughs> that i like hold it in but that's what we love about you <laughs> no i don't want you to hold it. Oh, this is this is no holds barred you know i'm barring my hold right now <laughs> Give it five what? minutes. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you start listening to that. And then, you know, band comes around, trombone comes around. When did just the thought of, like, this could be something I could do as a major in school, something that, oh, I could do this in college. Like, wh wh when did that kind of thing happen? Yeah, well, that was probably more like I was a sophomore or junior in high school. And I was really ha lucky to go to a public, a public high school with a really strong music program. It was a large high school. It's like 4,000 students so there were four bands four orchestras four jazz bands four choirs wow. but i was not in any choirs so it was a really strong high school music program i can think about some of the students just again it was a public school it wasn't like a performing arts magnet i i think from the few grades above me a few grades below me so like 10 people in professional orchestras wow what what high school is this because i mean like i, I know uh, the area a little bit new trier high school in in the chicago suburbs yeah, I've I've heard of it. I have a couple of cousins who teach and taught in the mm -hmm. suburbs. And also in some great youth orchestras. And like when I was joining my youth orchestra, Ethan Bensdorf had just left. Uh, for those who don't know, Ethan Ethan is a trumpet player in the New York Philharmonic. Right. Ethan, I think, is from Evanston. And he I know that he studied trumpet with my assistant band director from my high school, who was a really great trumpet player. So it was just like a pretty pretty high level like all around and it seemed like kind of normal i didn't realize that it wasn't normal so i knew a lot of graduating seniors when i was a freshman or sophomore that were going into music so it just seemed like a a, a normal typical thing to do if you're in a huge school and you have 100 seniors in band you know you're going to have people that are going to music already so yeah because that, that that sounds like a bigger program than a lot of colleges honestly yeah i don't know the numbers but i know that it's it was like 4,000 for the total enrollment and one band orchestra and jazz band for each grade, essentially. That's great. And so I oh, imagine you're, you're, you're checking out the Chicago Symphony from a young age being that close. Do you remember your, like your first experience hearing that section? Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't remember my first, like what concert was it? I don't remember my first time hearing the CSO, but I definitely remember by about my sophomore year, I was going pretty frequently, like probably once every maybe six to eight weeks, like as a high schooler. And then probably by my senior year, um, I actually became friends with Jesse Clevenger, who was Dale Clevenger's son, who was going to my high school because Dale Clevenger lived like four doors, <laughs> four, four doors down from where my high school was. So I got became friends with him and we and then we would go like 
maybe every two weeks when I was a senior. Hook you up with some free tickets, I imagine. Some. Sometimes we didn't have tickets and we had to sneak in. But it was a simpler time Ooh. back then. <laughs> so was it always Northwestern was your the place that you wanted to go to school? Or did you have other aspirations? Or was it just, again, on this like continuous path? Northwestern was my one of my top choices. I mean, I didn't apply to very many schools. I only applied to six. That's a lot. Okay. I, I've one of my students last year wants to apply to 12 and I'm like, Oh, it's growing. Think... It's, it's different now. People apply to a lot more schools now. Yeah. I mean, do you really want to go to those other five that aren't the first five? You know, that's my opinion. But, I'm um, thinking, I'm thinking this year since it's pandemic and a lot of schools aren't doing things in person. So you're going to save a lot of money, but from traveling and having to do live auditions that sure. I could see a lot of people doubling how many places. Well, they I remember when I was applying the, the common app, was like just getting started so people were like applying to a lot more than maybe they would otherwise anyway northwestern it was it was one of my top choices because of michael mulcahy you know growing up in chicago my my teachers uh, i had one kind of main teacher in high school his name was mark fry and he's like you know really plugged into the chicago freelance scene so through his recommendation, I was taking lessons with Michael Mulcahy and, and Jay Friedman and Charlie Vernon once in a while, like maybe once a year. I, I knew the reputation. I knew that in my one or two lessons, it was like a really eye-opening time. So I thought, okay, like that's one possibility going to Northwestern. And then I, I applied to Indiana because I knew it was a great music school also. And I, I met Pete Ellison, I think through my youth orchestra. And then I also applied to Rice because my teacher, Mark, is from Houston and he'd studied with David Waters. So he thought that Rice was a great place. And then I applied to a few conservatories. I applied to the conservatories like Juilliard in Manhattan and, and San Francisco. So I'm just curious, your parents coming from, you know, some tech backgrounds and advanced pursuits. When you came and, and said, hey, I want to I go study music, was, was that a difficult conversation? It, it wasn't difficult, but it was a conversation. And I think, you know, everyone's different. But for us, it kind of, it wasn't like one conversation. I think we, we spoke about, again, my junior year, right? You kind of make some choices when you're a junior in high school in order to apply when you're a senior. So I think we, we kind of had the conversation throughout that year. And they would ask things like, well you know, what, what about this? What about this? And, and once they realize, and you know, I'm really lucky. My parents are always extremely supportive of me. So once they realized that it was a serious thing, it also was, you know, I wasn't only applying to conservatories, for example, I was applying to universities also. So there was sort of a balance by the time I was ready to apply to colleges, they were completely on board. I don't think they assumed at that time that I would become a professional musician, but they were, they were on board with me being a music major at, you know, for my undergrad. Probably helps when you're, when you go to a place like Northwestern, because as a parent, it probably makes them feel a lot better knowing that, oh, if the music thing doesn't work out, oh, he's at Northwestern. Well, you know, it's funny. My dad went to University of Chicago, so it was like rivalry with Northwestern. But my mom went to Northwestern for her master's. So. Oh, wow. And actually, my uncle went to Northwestern for his law degree, I think. Yeah, Little go cats. cats. Yeah, go cats. Well, we're also, we're from Evanston, so it was always around. Okay, so you end up going to Northwestern. Can you just walk us through kind of a Reader's Digest version of your experience there? Well, the first week of my freshman year. <laughs> first week, the orientation week of my freshman year, the orientation <laughs> group was like 12. I don't know if every school does this or Northwestern does this, but all of the trombones were in the same orientation group. So there were five of us. 
the orientation group is supposed to be like you know a smaller a group, people a, a smaller community than the whole freshman class right so you can walk around campus together and like learn about you know orientation stuff but so it's just the trombone so my well, first the, week well they was, do that just to contain the smell really right you know keep the smelly kids together yeah so my first week was meeting you know my classmates for the next four years not to joke but that was you know <laughs> that was what it was I feel sorry for those seven other kids that show up to this orientation group to meet. I think there are some trumpet players in there. You know, they kept it like all the schools together. So I I don't know anyone from like the engineering program at Northwestern or whatever. Yeah, it was, it was always, it was, I, I enjoyed my whole time there. You got to study with Mick Mulcahy and you got to study with. Uh, My freshman year, the teachers were Mulcahy, Charlie Vernon and Pete Ellison. So I can say from the outside that one of the unique things about Northwestern, at least at that time, was that the students, yourself included, got to study with the different teachers. And it was a ro- kind of a rotating studio. And we were talking about this the other day that we've more or less implemented that at the schools I teach at in the New York area. And I think it's a great way to experience school and what all your faculty has to offer can you just talk about that experience a little bit about getting to get all the input of these great professors yeah so like i mentioned when i first started it was only three and and charlie we were kind of told that he was a little more reserved for the bass trombone obviously so really i was most i was probably you know 40 percent with mulcahy 40 percent with pete and 20 percent with charlie my my freshman year of course, we think about Michael Mulcahy being like the main teacher. So I think he's the one that's responsible for bringing in everyone else that's on faculty. And if you look at the people that are on faculty, if you connect the dots, everyone has a mostly similar playing philosophy in terms of explaining pedagogy, what to focus on, what's the most important thing with trombone playing. So the, the end goal is the same, but obviously everyone has their own way of explaining it. For example, Michael Mulcahy is very well-spoken, sometimes can explain things very you know poetically loquaciously (laughs) whereas my lessons with charlie vernon it was okay i'm gonna play it now you're gonna play it and now make it sound like this (laughs) but that make it sound like this is probably the same thing that michael mulcahy is trying to explain right so to me it was great i was able to learn so many things from each teacher that i had that you wouldn't get if you only had one teacher not i mean maybe there's some things that you do get with one teacher like uh consistency guidance every step of the way but um pros and cons and i think there are a lot of pros to to the way that we did it so my after my freshman year charlie left i think something his schedule at depaul he had to he had to fully commit to depaul so when it was uh right around the same time as the dso strike in 2009 so I'm not sure what the dates, if the writing was on the wall, but Randy started teaching. Randy Haw started teaching then my sophomore year. And then it was my junior year when, when Tim Higgins started teaching. So by my, so by my senior year, there was Mulcahy, Pete Ellison, Randy, and Tim. Just, wow. just amazing exposure and a lot of great minds to great players to, to hear. I can't, I can't even imagine. And the, and the studio was always really strong. I mean, consistently. And I imagine it was, was Brian Heck there? Um, yeah. Doug Rosenthal when you were there. Doug had just graduated. Um, it's funny. So Doug was also in my youth orchestra, but we're four years oh, wow. apart. So we were always graduating. He was graduating when I was coming up. So we never, <laughs> we didn't meet until many years later. But um, because he's Baker from was there, right? Yeah, Will Baker was there, and some Will Baker a little later. So be- like Hecht and Will were not together, 
So Brian's... did you did you have to be generally handsome to go to Northwestern? Because you got the you got the Bender handsome, you got the 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 Hecht handsome, and the Baker handsome. Prerequisite, apparently. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to quickly think of someone that wouldn't care if I called them ugly right now. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> oh, Jeremy's handsome too. Yeah, Jeremy Dang. is handsome. You can't deny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so heck, I remember I played on Brian's master's recital as a freshman, <laughs> oh, nice. a quartet. Mm. Um, and that quartet was me, Brian, Logan Chopic, who's now in San Diego symphony and Paul Jenkins, who's now in the Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so let, let's just push forward a little bit, and you are taking auditions. I mean, when did that when did that process start, and how long did it take you until you got to the chapter you know I'm going to talk about, which is overseas? Yeah, my first audition was uh, <laughs> was not prepared for properly, uh, as most first ones are not. Um, it was for the Cincinnati Symphony, the the time that Sam Schlosser won it. Mm-hmm. I think that was my junior year, so. I didn't have a chance. <laughs> and I remember at that audition, they had so many applicants that the first round was split in two different rooms with two oh, different committees. I hate that. <laughs> well, you know, you're trying to cut through the, cut through the fat like me. <laughs> you don't need, you don't need the whole committee listening. I understand. Um, so that I almost, I almost don't even count that. So my first audition that I really sat down and like wrote out a plan and prepared for was the Washington National Opera, which uh, Doug Rosenthal won. And that was in January of my, senior year. And then a few months later in May of my senior year is when the Finnish National Opera audition happened. And that was when I did end up winning that. Those first two audition experiences, how was it mentally? I mean, were you learning a lot from it not working out? Well, let's just talk about the second one, because the first one I didn't even like practice correctly. You know, now knowing what I know, I was like, what was I doing? So the first one, I just like missed notes and like played wrong. (laughs) So, uh, But in the second one, the Washington National, that one, I really went like by the book, you know, I was reading Don Green's book. I was talking to Tim Higgins about audition preparation. And uh, I did the whole Mike Roylance thing where I slowed everything down to half tempo for like weeks and weeks beforehand. You know, I was still a young player, a senior in your undergrad. It's unusual for someone to be ready to really present a good audition. But I was happy because of the Don Green stuff. I did feel very comfortable. You know, the nervousness that happens in your head, as long as it doesn't affect you physically, then you can still play well. So that's what I was focusing on. Whenever I would play in studio class or something, I sometimes had a problem, you know, with a little bit of shaking or whatever. So I was trying to overcome that. And I think I did the, the centering from the Don Green books really worked for me. I was really happy with how I played. I mean, I didn't advance, but... I think I played past the cut excerpt and, you know, for me, I felt okay with how I played, even though I didn't advance, which is totally an an okay or a (laughs) likely outcome when, uh, if you feel okay, sometimes you don't advance anyway, but you can still feel okay about it. Right. You know, I, after taking so many auditions myself, one of the things I, I started promising myself is not, not necessarily the result of winning an audition or advancing or anything like that, but being able to walk away from the experience saying, I went in there, I gave it my all, I prepared as well as I could, and I represented myself well. Yeah, know? exactly. It's, it, yeah. It, it, that's almost more important so they can sleep at night. You know? <laughs> yeah. So basically, it was only a few months after that that I started getting ready for the audition in Finland. And some of the rep was the same, some maybe one or two kind of odd excerpts, are like, like Strauss Arabella. 
anyone oh, who wow. plays in an opera orchestra you two play an opera orchestra so maybe you've played that or know I, it i've never played it but yeah. uh there's a really tricky overture i think to the third act over and over again so some tricky stuff like that but um i just it wasn't all sibelius there was i don't even think there was sibelius because sibelius didn't write any opera uh there's the first one actually that's like the second bender jab I, that wasn't a jab. <laughs> oh, the way you said it, it had a tone. Okay. Um, but my <laughs> tone. So I just continued. I basically just did the same thing as I did for the Washington audition because I felt like it worked pretty well. Methodical, preparing myself mentally, you know, with the centering. I imagine it's one of your first auditions. Taking an audition in another country, I'd, I'd imagine, was an interesting prospect. Um, was the Was the process there any different than than an American audition felt? Slightly, knowing what I know now. You know, at the time, as it was only my second slash third professional audition, I didn't quite know what was normal. So now I know that it was it's not normal in America, but it's normal in Europe to play the David Concerto with a pianist in the first round. And usually you, you don't have rehearsal, of course, like the pianist is sitting there playing it 50 times. So... Um, it's like tuned to a447 it was tuned high i think it was i think they tuned to 44 or 43 wow um so just push in all the way (laughs) and hope for the best yeah other i mean other than that looking back it's it's typical you know typical audition stuff after after the david happened you know there's uh rounds behind the screen final round there's a section round you know yeah, and Got it. David and I could have ended up in the same section in the alternate universe because I, when I was 20, I think, maybe 21, I was runner-up for the same job for the Finnish National Opera. That would have been 2005 or something like that. Yeah, Nick is talking about the bass trombone position. So he was runner-up to, to my colleague, who became my colleague, a Swedish player named Niklas Larsson, who's a great, great bass trombonist. How long were you there? I was there for only three seasons. Three seasons plus I came back for like six weeks after taking a year off just to finish out my time. Nice verb there. Did you catch that? Finish out your time. Oh. Nothing. Wow. It's like I'm doing a podcast by myself here. <laughs> exactly. Were you determined the entire time you were in Finland to come back stateside? Or what was? were you toying with the idea of being elsewhere in Europe? Or, or were you putting out feelers everywhere what what was the situation with that I, I i guess i would say i was putting out feelers everywhere being there was a fantastic fantastic experience in a great position and it could have been great for a long time i think i knew after just about one or two years that i didn't want to like spend my entire career in finland and like why I, not you know there's no baseball. <laughs> i was no seriously though imagining my life outside of the orchestra like outside of the job and like, especially I was, I was long distance with my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time. And I couldn't really imagine, well, I guess I'm kind of a nostalgic person. So I was trying to think about my childhood growing up in Chicago suburbs and what my life would be like, you know, into my like forties and fifties. And I just thought that I wanted a little bit more of my comfort level of being in the U S whatever, if that makes me not a adventurous person, but I kind of realized that pretty quickly that way in the future, you know, I was only 22 or 23, but I was like, you know what, if I was 45, I think I want to move back to the U S and sort of my personality. Once I realized that, then I can do it as soon as possible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think moving to another country at 22 for three years is, is, is very adventurous. Well, 
So, and also to answer Nick's question, at the time, while I was there, I was I was taking a lot of auditions. I don't remember this number offhand, but I think I took between 10 and 15 auditions in like Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, hmm. and Denmark. And then like once a year, I could come back to take an audition in the U.S. So like I auditioned for the, the Colorado Symphony, that also Sam Schlosser won, <laughs> and Nashville. Long trip. Nashville, where... um where Paul won. I was mm -hmm. in the finals with him. It was kind of fun. We actually, every round together, we were right after each other. <laughs> oh, wow. But yeah, I was taking a lot of auditions at that time. And it's, it seems like you took advantage of your time there. You, you traveled around and studied with Ian and Jamie Williams also, right? Yeah. So J Ian was in Switzerland and Jamie Williams is American, but he's the principal uh, trombone in the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. Ooh, so I went to I, school with actually. That's right. He went to Juilliard, yeah. I know, in the him early and, 2000s. And yep. Yeah, Brad. Brad, yeah, he plays down in yeah. Sarasota. So, yeah, while I was there, I kind of almost think about it looking back as like my fake master's degree, <laughs> mm -hmm. my fake master's studies. So I did, I did, I was playing in the orchestra, I was taking a lot of auditions, and I was trying to go study with people, you know, in Europe that I wouldn't normally get the chance to. I didn't get to everyone that I wanted to, but um, I went down and played with Ian maybe two or three times with Jamie twice. Also took a lesson with Jesper, Jesper Sorensen in Berlin. But I think, and maybe your listeners who are a little out of school will agree, like once you get a little bit older and you're not taking lessons every week, each lesson becomes a little more important. <laughs> or if you take a really informative lesson, like I really like studying with Jamie because um, he would explain things really uh, that helped me a lot. And I would listen back to the to my tapes, and I, that one lesson could sustain me for like months of practicing, trying to think about these concepts in a really high level. Even though I didn't take so many lessons while I was there, you know, I don't know what I just mentioned, six, seven, uh, but they were all very consequential to me, and I really took a lot from each individual one. I imagine it's it's really cool you took advantage, and you know, you're in Scandinavia, but it's still pretty easy to get around up there, and everything's all these different cultures and, and amazing talents are close. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone always asked me if I would take the train from like Helsinki to <laughs> Berlin. I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to swing through like Lithuania. <laughs> um, but yeah, the flights, you know, flying from Helsinki to Berlin was just about two hours. Oh, it's man. Simple and, and pretty inexpensive, you know. I did want to ask one last Finland question before we left. I think we briefly talked about this maybe in the past, but... How intense was the, the darkness situation in, was it in the winters? Yep. Dark in the winters, sunny in the summers. I didn't find it that bad. I think it was a few different reasons, mostly because I was inside all day practicing. <laughs> so I wasn't like some of the rooms I was in had windows. Some of them didn't have windows. So I almost didn't notice. I didn't notice it being dark at 3 p.m. You know, would the sun come out at all? Yeah. Yeah. Would, so Finland, I mean, Helsinki is the southern very southern part of the country it's about even with alaska like the juno or anchorage alaska so the sun would come out in the middle of the day like let's say 11 to 3 but it would be like kind of dusk or or daylight or dawn for a, many hours when you're that far north it's not such a quick sunrise and sunset as it is the further south you go so it was a long time of twilight the twilight might last like two hours that's pretty cool and then it and then it's like 11 to 3 is full sun, and then it's twilight for two hours after that. But the opposite is in the summertime, it's light all the day, all day long. So that was actually, I found that more strange than the wintertime, 
because um, on a lot of people will say this, it like messes up your sleep schedule. So you have to get blackout curtains when the sun's up at 1230 p.m. or a.m. Sorry, like after midnight, you're you just don't get as tired. And then the next day you're sleepy, but somehow, you know, you're awake because the sun is up. So that was a little more bizarre to me than the than the winter time. It's like, why am I so tired? And you're like, oh, it's it's 1 a.m. <laughs> it's 1 a.m. It's 1 a.m. And it's twilight outside. Right. That's cool. So you're taking these auditions around Europe. You're taking auditions in the United States. Then we land at the fateful audition of the Detroit Symphony, which is the orchestra I grew up listening to. Was this like, I, I think I know the answer, but was it an audition that when it came up, you're like, put everything aside. This is the most important thing on my book right now. I mean, definitely when I saw it that, you know, Detroit the top 10, top 10 orchestra. So like I said, I can only both financially and also like schedule wise, I could really only come back for maybe one or two auditions in the US a year while I was over there. But very, you know, serendipitously, it was at the end of January. And I don't remember why, but you know, the Finnish or the Finnish National Opera had a week off that week, the whole week. So I didn't even have to take off work. Oh, wow. So that was pretty lucky. So yeah, it was I saw it come up. And um it was definitely one that I was going to come back for. And what was what was your process like? What did, what did you learn at this point compared to, say, when you won the, the Finnish job as, as far as how you went into preparing for this audition? You know, funnily enough, my preparation is almost exactly the same as from my Washington National Opera audition way back when I was a senior. Because I, I kind of, you know, through the advice of my teachers, I learned this really good methodical system and you know tweaks here and there but the but pretty it's pretty much the same thing that i do at every audition still which i got can you I'll, describe that a little yeah i've called it like the it's been described to me as something that mike roylance came up with you take a whole list you divide the list into excerpts that are maybe very technical based lyrically based maybe ones that have a lot of high register playing so it's like an endurance test you're going to make it three groups to rotate over three days. So you evenly distribute those groups across three days. So if there are eight lyrical excerpts, you practice, you know, three, three, two. If there are nine technical excerpts, you practice three technical excerpts each day. So you're just making everything even that you're not favoring one thing to be practiced over another thing. And I actually have this on my website a um a practice planner where i kind of wrote this out in one page we'll have to we'll have to share that davidbender.net or something what is it did i nail it yes dot net and it's under my downloads um i made it I for che- i check the website every night so mm. um <laughs> <laughs> that was about the creepiest response you could add just mm. i wasn't <laughs> expecting that mm. one um so you you distribute that i start about seven weeks eight or seven weeks before and you take everything half tempo and you spend about nine days at half tempo because it's a groups of three. Everything's I'm going to say everything divisible by three. So I spend like nine days at half tempo and then maybe six days at 60% tempo. It's just a very slow way of increasing the tempo. And I only, and you only need to do for me like 10 minutes per excerpt. So if you're doing eight or nine excerpts a day, that's about, it's about two hours with breaks. Oh, and, and every day you're doing it in a random order. About halfway through, I shuffle the days so that everything's random. It's just a way of being that you slowly, slowly get ready. Um, you bring everything up to tempo and you do it all very randomly so that on the day of the audition, 
you're not more used to playing. Well, I always start with Tuba Miram and because then it kind of warms me up and then I can play Bolero. Well, I can't play Organ Symphony right after Bolero because I'm too tight. Well, you know, if I play Bruckner 7 right before I have to play Ride of the Valkyries, you know, like I, I'm too tired, so I'm not going to do that in my practice session. You know, ideally, this, the when you audition for an orchestra, they, they make the list in a in a way that will make the candidate most successful, but not that sometimes they try to make the list so the candidate is least successful. <laughs> so you have to be ready for anything, and it's essentially just a way of of being ready for every anything because you've practiced everything in any every way. I have a question um, and a comment. Sure. Do you also do that with dynamics? Do you like if something's soft, do you bring it up in dynamic to make it more comfortable? Or if it's really loud, do you bring it down in dynamic? I mean, is that is that also part of the building up process? Hmm. You know, I've never done that. Like well, I've never done that methodically. Maybe just in a day if I'm like, wow. You, you know, don't need to swing symphony. for the fences all the time, right? Yeah, or organ symphony is not feeling good. Let me just play it loud once to like get get it flowing. Sure. You know, that's an interesting idea, though. All right, uh, go, to bring go it update down. that website. Come on, <laughs> the Nick Schwartz asterisk. Yeah. Oh, I like it. I'll, I'll take it. You know, I'll, I'll take a cut. And so um, the comment it was, you know, you said kind of in passing, which is meant to be in passing, that you know all this preparation each day takes maybe about two hours with breaks. So if you started with that comment, oh, you're going to practice your exit for two hours a day. I think that can be daunting for people. But then if you, if you start like how you did, it only takes me eight, nine minutes per excerpt, maybe 10. It's yeah. really not a whole lot per one. Oh, yeah. and, and so I, I love, I teach this way too. And I practice this way. I love breaking things down into small digestible chunks like that, because it, then it adds up to something much bigger rather than exactly. I need to play three hours a day, you know? Right. And if you have a list that's, let's say 30, I've been, I've been finding 30 excerpts is a pretty typical on a list. If you start two months in advance, you don't need to play everything every day. That's why if you break, if you only play 10 excerpts a day, you're fine. Right. <laughs> you're going to remember, you know, two days later. And actually it goes by quick because sometimes if you like, if I, my chops feel tired or if I have a weird travel day and I have to miss a day and you're one day behind, you're only one day until you have to redo the third day. You know what I mean? Three days is actually a pretty fast, it's a pretty cycle. fast schedule yeah. cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I only do 10 minutes per excerpt essentially. And if you do 10 a day with breaks, hundred minutes, but really it's about two hours. Well, no, I would, I do other stuff. I do a little bit of fundamental practicing. Usually definitely at the beginning of my excerpt preparation, I make sure to keep practicing fundamentals, maybe toward the end. If I'm ramping up, I can bring that down a little, but yeah you stole something from me, I'm going to steal something from you. I like this whole plan. This is nice. Yeah, it's uh, a good way to, to stay balanced. I'll email you, Nick. Well, I think I, I think we should share on our uh, social medias your little plan there. And um, Sure, I'll have to make sure it <laughs> looks good. <laughs> it's not written in crayon or something. Right. <laughs> no, I, I think that um, it's a really good way. It doesn't even have to be excerpts. It could be, you could apply this to your recital. You could apply this to so many mm -hmm. things in and oh, sure. or your or just your weekly lessons you know just sitting down with like, okay i have these etudes okay how am i gonna how much time do i need to dedicate per day that i'm both covering my bases and also not burning out you know right i mean i i don't know if it's pop psychology but so many like people talking about peak performance and and kind of a common thing is small amounts of progress very consistently Right. It's way easier than trying to do everything at once, and it's it gets you to a, a higher level than you would be otherwise at the end of the process. 
Yeah. And half the problem sometimes is just purely logistics is just being prepared, feeling prepared, not feeling like you neglected something and making a long methodical process like this where you can actually even document. I'm sure you document what you worked on that day. And well, yeah, I, what I do is I write it. a little calendar and I write and I check marks um, on this one piece of paper. Actually, I'll, I'll, you'll see what I mean. Cool. So the audition happens. Were you feeling pretty good throughout the day? What Was it a surprise? Well, th- so that audition, if I remember, I flew from Helsinki to Chicago on a Sunday and I picked up my car from my parents' house in Chicago. I had a lesson with Mulcahy on Monday has played through him his stuff and also played some excerpts in this in the studio class. He lets he's great. He lets uh, alumni sometimes come back and play. So it was like six p.m. on Monday night uh, when I started driving to Detroit. I, I knew I was only going to drive like halfway because also I'm jet lagged at this time, you know, because it's six p.m. It's like one a.m. in Helsinki. So I drove halfway. I had requested to go late on Tuesday, so the personnel manager put me as like the second to last person to go. So I drove. Another halfway and Tuesday morning, I got to Detroit in the middle of the day. And you know, you, you show up, you warm up. My first round, I think, was was okay. I, you know, it felt normal to me, which is always my goal to feel like you just play at your normal level. I was told I was advanced, but because I was, I was also last in the in the second round, so I had to wait till like nine p.m. to play. So at this point, I'm getting kind of tired. like sleepy. So I do remember kind of a funny story that while I was waiting in my warm-up room for my semifinal round, I fell asleep because I was so jet lagged. I was like, took a nap for an hour, (laughs) which actually was nice. I certainly didn't feel like super nervous or excited. Not, you know, like excitable. I wasn't so jacked up. I was kind of sleepy actually. So then my second round was also okay. I remember they asked me to play some stuff again because I'm, you know, rushing or whatever but it was okay and then and then i was the only i was the only one advanced to the finals which was the next day how long have you been in the detroit symphony now uh this uh, you know i don't know if it counts but this is my sixth year my sixth season it, oh well i mean it feels it feels like time has stopped <laughs> because we've but, missed yes, because has. we've missed so much of stuff but i joined in september of 15 and it was funny because because we've gotten to play there a couple times now did i'm trying to remember did i first meet you was it at the retreat or was it when we played together? No, Sebastian. I've so I've told you this story many times. We first met when I cold called you when I was visiting Pittsburgh. Oh, that's right. And we hung out. Yeah, because I got that your number fun. from Jeremy. I got your number from Jeremy. I was flattered. And I was like, hey, I'm, you know, friend of a friend, trombone. Let's let's be friends. Didn't we go to some random party? I think so, yeah. There was like foam or something. There's something I don't know, it's a Pittsburgh thing. <laughs> yeah oh. and so and it was it was it was funny because like ken ken tompkins wanted you to focus on your position during your tenure process and so when i was called the sub i was i was playing principal which was interesting because you were like the member of the orchestra and it was like my first time playing but you were incredibly cordial and nice and we had fun that was a i think that was like a, a children's program that just had a bunch of big hits on it yeah that's how we do those kids programs into in the D. <laughs> oh, <the> three one three. <laughs> so we've had you to the retreat three times. Is that right? You you came once in 2016, like briefly as as like a guest, and then 2017 you came as guest faculty. Then this summer, came, then this summer you were you were also. Oh oh yeah guest. okay if we're counting we're counting this summer. Why doesn't it count? It has to count. 
Because I didn't see you in person. Oh, okay. we felt well, that's you. That's fair. That's fair. So if yeah. we count if we count this retreat, does that make David the all-time winner for the most? Or mm. well, no, that's a Jeff D question. Jeff I think D. Jeff's Jeff, only been well, twice. Tied. Well, well he's he been was tied. Uh, online. Yeah, count. online. He's he's been three times. That's right. So you guys need to have a battle royale. Well, it's like funny because I first met Jeff because he was subbing DSO a lot the year before he won Pittsburgh. Yeah, so I guess for those who don't know, Jeff D is the bass harmonist of Pittsburgh Symphony and a frequent guest of the retreat and a wonderful human being like David. I have a question. So reflecting on, on your years in, in, in the Detroit Symphony so far and obviously very unique time right now and first experiencing Randy Hawes as a teacher and then getting the opportunity to, to play with him professionally, um, just your thoughts on getting to work with him and, and his, his newly announced retirement. Yeah, I mean, Randy, Randy's been a fantastic colleague um, this whole time. Um, in my Back to my audition, after my final, my final round in Detroit is always screened, and then they vote if you, like, qualify for the job. And, but if there's, like, more than one person, they might have a super final, and then they would take the screen down. But so my final round, there was a vote, and I was, like, qualified or something. I was only, I was the only one. But they made me still play a section round. So yeah, the section round happened, and then Randy like was like pretty pretty special moment for us as a student teacher and seeing each other then. Um, and ever since then, you know, it's been great. He has been professionally as a colleague, you know, immediately you know great level of respect and and treating me as an equal, which you know I I could imagine like a horror story of a of a teacher still being the teacher, and that would not work <laughs> in the professional setting. So you know, he's just been great, and um, obviously. I learned a lot. I continued to learn a lot just by sitting next to him as well as everyone else in the DSO. So uh, as Sebastian alluded, he announced his retirement last year before the pandemic. It was like he was doing his paperwork in January. We were hiring subs in February. And then, you know, then March happened. Yeah, it's a little, it was bittersweet. Obviously, uh, we were sad to see him go. But also, it's great that he uh, really went out on top, you know, with no no kind of deterioration in his playing of ability and it's a great great time for him so one thing i wanted to make sure to get in there is during this pandemic you started an exciting venture that i think you've been thinking about for a while and no, and then you decided no time greater than the present can you tell us about your new business that you've started yeah so i started a audio and video mobile recording business called prestige recording services that i'm focusing on what i would say any acoustic music so i don't really have the equipment for like rock and roll but like classical jazz folk on-site recording people ask me if it's a recording studio and no i don't have a studio but if it's a you know classical musicians we know that we prefer to play in concert halls rather than a dry recording studio so um i audio engineer recordings for for people i've had a I've only started doing it for people other than myself <laughs> a few months ago, and I've already um, had some great, great clients and great uh, projects uh, completed. Cool. Yeah, and I was I was there somewhat re- recently, or very recently actually, and you showed me all your gear and played some recordings, and you know, I mean, you're obviously set up for really excellent recording and have deep knowledge of this and a passion for it. So, you know, I think that we're, uh, other than hearing about you as a great Tremonis, I think we're going to hear more about you as a AV guy. Perhaps. And speaking, and perhaps, and speaking of which, I want to ask you about one thing, and then I have a few quick questions, and then, then I have a special request. So with your recording, you, you, had a, you did a really cool project that I, I really admire. You really did a good deep dive in trombone repertoire with chamber music, with, with, with string quartets, 
with was it also percussion. You got a, a a grant to record this repertoire, and you made these amazing videos that are on your website. Could you could you talk a little sure about that? Sure. So the broad strokes were. I, let me just go over the chronology a little bit differently. Um, so I applied for a grant. Um, this this wonderful organization, the Kresge, um, administered by the Kresge Foundation, which um, you guys know Kmart. That's Kresge Mart. <laughs> uh, so the Kresge Foundation is a huge, you know, philanthropic organization across the Midwest. Um, and Kresge Arts in Detroit awards these fantastic grants to artists in the city every year. Disciplines rotate throughout uh, every two years. So music came up. I just applied kind of on a whim and kind of with the idea that, you know, I would love to play rather than just trombone and piano recitals, trombone with chamber ensemble recitals. Um, so I wrote the grant application for that purpose and explained how the concerts would work and, and how I hoped to impact the city, uh, and the arts, uh, the arts environment, as well as the, the community in the city. And I was very fortunate to be awarded the grant. And so because of that, I was able to organize and, and perform these concerts. I had a recital with string quartet. I had another recital with organ. At the same time, I, w- I did a lot of master classes uh, with my wife, Tiffany, on piano. So it was a very busy year. There was, in 2018, I think I played six recitals in three weeks of three different, wow. three different programs. <laughs> wow, that's uh, So those are the videos. The, those videos are from that. And so those recordings, I would call that was my, my beta, <laughs> my beta testing. And I have a lot, I have a much different setup now. So I, if I could go back, everything would be completely different, but it was, it was, it was okay for uh, archival purposes. Well, th- there's a lot of fantastic repertoire out there that not many trombonists perform. Yeah. The string quartet stuff. I really, I had to, I was like calling composers, you know, checking, doing research on websites not it was it was difficult to find you know because it's not on so many people's cds as was i think a lot of maybe cd or spotify or whatever a lot of the way that i find music that i like for trombone and piano is because people have already recorded it you can listen to a famous trombonist cd and and hear something you like and then you want to play it this music that i was trying to play had never been recorded before it also i didn't commission it but it had never been recorded before so it was a little more difficult to find so that was a little bit of a task, but it was great. And, and I have some clips on my website and, and my YouTube of, of those performances. We want to try something new with you that we haven't done before. And this is going to go from the stupid to maybe a little more in depth. But just a few quick questions to get your, your instant lightning opinion on. Okay. Some of these are really dumb, but we came up with them. Thera valve, rotor valve. Rotor. Okay. Your least favorite and your favorite piece to play either solo or orchestral you know i really like playing Mahler three but i've never but not the solo part you know i play second trombone now i played it at the tetons on second also but like i love the sixth movement of Mahler three which you know some people might not get to <laughs> beautiful beautiful chorales i love and and that's such a journey and everyone talks about the chorale Mahler two i actually like Mahler three a little bit better Hot take. So let's call that my favorite solo solo piano. Let's say like Trump, like typical repertoire stuff. If I could play it better, I would love playing the Creston, but it's like so hard <laughs> that I don't. String players hate that too. Well, no Have you doubt. Ever talk to a string player. Have you talk to a pianist. <laughs> oh god, yeah, I'm no sure they all hate it. But um, if I could play it a little bit better, that would be my favorite. Least favorite. You know what? I have love for all the trombone rep. 
I I used to think that the Rimsky Korsakov was really stupid, but then I just like kind of fooled around stupid. with it, and I was like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Maybe I should ask most overrated, but that's tricky too. Most overrated? Well, this is that's tricky. I think something that is played as a something if if people could make a little bit more effort with looking for repertoire is the Sulek Sonata. The Sulek Sonata is awesome. Sulek. Schulich. The Stepchan Schulich Sonata is is a great piece, but I think a lot of people, myself included, when I played at my sophomore year recital, you could go like find something a little bit different and get the same result, but I think because so many famous people have recorded it, it's become so standard, but I still love it. I mean, it's a great piece, but maybe slightly overrated. All right. Yamaha, Tramontine, or Super Slick? Yamaha. Okay, that's that's the correct answer. This might go along with with your previous um, answer, but do you have like one concert experience that was just overall the most meaningful, most memorable? The first time I played with Chicago Symphony, it was the most memorable because I was actually during while it was happening, I was telling myself to memorize it. <laughs> it was with Charles Dutois, and uh, we're playing Ravel and Debussy, and the Due to You Cello Concerto, which only has two trombones. I was playing second. And I believe it's Due to Luke's. Mm. The Tiliux. Right. Thanks, guys. So I was, um, yeah, that was a that was when I was a senior at Northwestern. I, I, I really, <laughs> I, it sounds stupid, but I was trying to memorize the experience. So I do remember it pretty well. Is fifth position real? Yes, of course. I I play all my low A naturals in the valve in fifth position. Hot take. <laughs> um, and last question for me: something you would tell your eighteen-year-old self when I was eighteen. Not to just that your question is just a coincidence. When I was eighteen, I did develop a slight problem in my playing, and when I, becoming a freshman at Northwestern, I tried to hide it from my teachers because you know I was trying to impress impress them or impress my other student colleagues so i'd never asked them about it and i just kind of tried to fix it on my own it ended up becoming like a bigger problem so when i was 18 if i could go back and tell myself would be try to fix it (laughs) fix it before it became more of an issue this is a question i like to ask what do you think tremonis and musicians in general could do more of that they don't do enough of i would say if i had to completely generalize and, and take a guess. Um, I would guess that most musicians, most young musicians do not listen to solo music of other instruments. So, you know, I've, since I was, uh, since the last couple of years, I really like listening to trumpet, trumpet solo music. I know that might be sacrilegious to say. Can but, you give a couple uh, recommendations just along those lines? Well, I mean, obviously, Hulk and Hardenberger yes, jumps amazing. out. But there's something really good trumpet sound is really special to me and the way that the articulation kind of pops out i I try to sometimes play trombone a little bit more like a trumpet rather than a tuba but that that that's a digression but uh (laughs) you know i like listening to solo cd by albrecht meyer you know principal oboe of berlin phil i listen to emmanuel paud you know principal flute i just think that we spend so much time trombonists or whomever spend so much time, you know, listening to your instrument solo CDs that you miss out on a lot of other great things. And you can sometimes hear 
special qualities that are kind of normal on another instrument, like I mentioned the articulation of a trumpet that you can try to maybe bring into your trombone playing or the playing of your instrument. Speaking of appreciating other solo instruments, a little known talent that David Bender has is is he's quite the banjo player. Banjoist? <laughs> banjoist. <laughs> is there any possibility there's a banjo in the room right now and he does not know that I know it is. It's directly to his it's, left. Yeah, it's, it's, is it? it's is it two there? feet away from me, actually. Is there any chance we could get you to play us out? Yeah. A little uh, David Bender special? Uh, we're going to... This we might need a few takes. Might need a few takes. <laughs> I guarantee you there is zero banjists listening to this. So you um, can, you I can mean, pluck, pluck I have out. not practiced for like six years. <laughs> oh, perfect. That's not true. Uh, is this gonna be like the anchorman scene? Like, oh, I'm totally unprepared, and then like you just pull the banjo out of his sleeve. <laughs> Hold on. I'm so glad it's in the room. Oh, oh, you hear the case yeah. sounds. Click, clickety play clack. by play. Clickety-clack the banjo. Clickety-clack the banjo's back. I don't know about any trombone and banjo pieces, but we need to make that happen. David can't hear us right now, so we're just giving commentary. Watch him spend like 20 minutes tuning. You guys should be paying me extra for this. Oh, we are. We're paying you. We'll pay you as much money as we we make from this episode. Double what you're paying me now. Hey, well, let's triple it while we're at it. That's very, that's very generous. Wait, I, you know, I'm, but I'm not exaggerating. I like barely practice, so I forgot. Here comes, it's the setup. Classic. Let me tune, okay? Can I tune first? Told you, told you you would. This isn't like a flute. You just pull it out of your shirt pocket. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy right now. Well, I've, I've played banjo since I was in eighth grade. And. I think in high school, I was probably better at banjo than I was at trombone. And I have not gotten any better since then. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I started listening to Bela Fleck and I thought it was really awesome. In Chicago, there's the Old Town School of Folk Music. Um, and I just started taking group lessons there and took it from that. Okay, so I'll play you the first song I ever learned, which I think is the only song that I still remember how to play. David Bender, thank you so much for joining us. That was awesome. Thank you. I'm, I imagine you, your 80 year old self, just sitting on your porch all day doing that. No, it's funny. I used to, I used to tell people that not many people know this about me, but now I can't say that anymore. Oh, I, I had, I had this set up. Yeah, I know, I know that was on your little notes all the way at the bottom with an underline. I bet you don't know that my first instrument, <laughs> see, the banjo. I bet you don't know this. My first instrument was the guitar, David. That's wonderful. I have a guitar right next to me also. Well, I <laughs> the, on, the only song I remember how to play kind of is La Bamba. I just got that down, basically. Nick, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a one chord song. So. <laughs> I wasn't playing chords. I was playing, I like, I was like You're playing eight single years notes. old. Do, 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 do. 
you know what? Do, 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 do. I didn't say I was good at it. I said it was my first instrument. <laughs> Did you ever see the Labamba movie? Yeah. Oh, with uh, so I was tragic. Lou Diamond, Lou Diamond Phillips. Phillips. Yeah. I was at a bar in Fort Worth once, hanging out with some friends. It was this big outdoor bar. There's a band playing on stage. They took a break, and they came back, and I noticed Lou Diamond Phillips was like at the next table, and we'll just say he'd been drinking a little bit, and the band went up to him and said, "Hey, will you will you will you sing La Bamba with us?" And you would have to expect he'd be annoyed by that question, but he was just like all about it and all into it. And of course, he, he you know, he lip synced in the movie, but he went up there like super, super drunk and sang La Bamba. It was the coolest, just random experience. He's, he sounded great, too. Nice. You know, Sebastian, I think I say this with every guest, but... I love me some David Bender. I know, man. He's a good dude. He's very, like, very down to earth. He's one of those just proper Northwestern kids. You know, he's got just this refined, beautiful sound. Nice little Midwestern boy. Always well dressed. Clean cut. You know, Clean looks cut. like looks like he's about to give a press conference on Martha's Vineyard. I bet he has, knowing him. <laughs> he might have. <laughs> yeah, so I, I thought it was a really awesome interview. I, I really enjoyed enjoy hearing you know I, I enjoy hearing everyone talk about how they got from where they came from to where they're going and you know it, this was no exception to that and he had um you know a lot of success at a relatively young age considering that he won a job overseas and got to live that experience and it, it's just well, of course we knew all this but it's just it's interesting i think to hear it again and also fresh for our listeners so i think that was it was really fun to revisit that with him yeah, he always stayed very focused. He was very privileged to have such amazing teachers the whole way from from high school and experiences in Chicago to Northwestern and then going to Europe and, and studying with... He's very opportunistic, you know, always finding someone to play for, always taking lessons, always learning. I mean, it's it's no surprise he's he's found such success at, at a young age. Yeah, you know, I, I, I particularly enjoyed hearing his regiment for auditioning. I, I think that everyone should have a routine, you know, a daily routine, obviously, but what I mean here is a routine for something like an audition. And you could apply what he's talking about to recitals, to even your lessons at, on, a, on a more micro level. But that idea of really planning ahead and really having a, a rigorous schedule, I think is something that we should all take away from him and, you know, the others, other guests that have said their versions of that, but it's always good to kind of collect as much information as you can from someone who's been successful and grab little bits and pieces from everyone and apply it to yourself and the way you, that works best for you. Yeah. And you'll see with all the people we talk to, especially, I mean, the orchestral people that won auditions, you know, their, their plans may differ. They, they have different strategies. They have different opinions on how to prepare, especially knowing themselves what works best for them. But they all have a plan. Yeah, that's, you I know. think that's the, the, the tie that binds, so to speak, is that they've put some energy into the planning process, not just the, the practicing part, but away from the horn, using the other side of your brain, the more concrete planning, organizing sort of process rather than the creative side of our brain. And I think you need both. 
the I think the more that you do that stuff, the the planning ahead, it allows you to be more creative in the end because you have taken care of everything. And it's like, you know, just for example, off the top of my head, okay, at 2 PM, I know I'm going to be practicing X, Y, and Z. So you don't even have to think about it when you enter the room, it's you've planned it. And so I think that, you know, anyone who hasn't done this, and again, I'm not saying that you should do it exactly like David did, but you have to start somewhere and maybe you could take David's plan to start with and apply it to yourself for a month and see where you are. It, it could be just for your lessons or for your personal practice, but keep a practice journal, plan your, plan your uh, sessions for a, a week out. I used to do this in college. And when I really got serious about that, that's when I really saw my playing grow. And the other thing is talking, he was talking about, you know, he put in two hours and we, we, we spoke about this on the podcast together that he put in maybe two hours of practice on excerpts in a day, but you break it down and you're spending 10 minutes per excerpt, it really, when you break it down these digestible chunks, it, it not only is better, I think for productivity, because it's these really hyper-focused 10 minutes of, of time, but also you cover more in 10 minutes focused than just going in and taking 10 minutes to figure out what you're going to play by noodling around, oh, yeah. you know? Oh yeah. And we know how in this world we're surrounded by distractions. So forget your phone for a second, but just the second you start practicing something and, and get fixated on one thing or one thing's not working and you want to just really start working on this thing. And all of a sudden you've spent 45 minutes on one excerpt and you have a whole, whole list to prepare. It, it's that kind of organized self-discipline that gets you to the audition feeling confident because you know, you prepared, you know, you covered everything that, you know, there's not some excerpt you're hoping they don't ask for. It, uh, if, if you have it on your schedule and you, and you really hold to the schedule, okay, at 2 PM today, I'm going to work on William tell you're, you, you know, you're kind of, um, making a deal with yourself that hopefully you don't break. I mean, it's really up to you in the end, but, but I think having the structure in front of you really helps you follow through on your goals. And and this is where we are now. I mean, these people are, are competing depending on the job for, for a livelihood, for a life to something to, to build a family around, you know, it's the, the person that really puts their heart into it and makes it their job to prepare for this thing is, you know, going to have the best chance. Cause at the end, you know, we can all attest, like when you get to an audition, there's, there's a lot of people capable of doing the job at the end. There's a lot of really talented people that will be in the finals, but who, who's going to have that one special day? Who's going to be there a hundred percent that day and, and say something special? I mean, that's what you're hoping for. You want to give yourself the best opportunity to be that person. Yeah. And you know, th I think this applies to every opportunity that one could take. It could be a small regional orchestra. It could be, you know, the Chicago symphony. And it really doesn't matter in the end because, Hey, you could audition for a small regional orchestra, you know, somewhere, doesn't matter where. And suddenly that opportunity, if you win it, if you win the job, suddenly it gets more opportunities. And you, before you know it, you're kind of built into this scene. And so you never know what, what even maybe small opportunity could be the seed that grows into a career. Just like one thing leads to another, leads to another. And so, you know, I'm saying this because I feel like some people have the attitude of like, oh, well that this is a huge addition. I got to prepare extra hard. I don't think that's the way you do it. You know, I think that every time you put yourself out there in a competitive environment, like an audition or 
a competition, whatever it may be, but you want to put your best foot forward. It's more about the, the path on how you get there, the, the routine of practicing, how you're going to practice for everything. And if you have a standard and you have not just a standard of excellence, but a kind of, kind of a standard way that you prepare for anything that you're doing, I think that just sets you up for success. And also when that big audition comes along, you've already implemented this system. So you know how it's going to work. You know how you're going to get into that practice mode in that really like really excellent level that is hard to achieve. As John Kitzman always told me, getting better at the trombone is a, is a marathon, not a sprint. And Sebastian, you're a sprinter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think I've heard similar things from teachers before. Um, So we, so we have a question, Nick. Oh my goodness. So this question comes from David Lingle. Hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, so I, I posted something on our Instagram. Um, sometimes I, I, I see some really interesting posts about psychology that I like to post, and this one seemed pretty relevant to our lives. And it was about imposter syndrome, and it was related to the talk we had with Amanda, so I thought it was pretty relevant. I think it's something I've experienced before I even knew that there was a word for it. Sure. And so this post actually kind of defines it in an interesting way, it's just a, it's like a circle uh, pie chart and it says the cycle of imposter syndrome. So it starts with one, a specific task causes anxiety and self-doubt. For example, being invited to be a speaker at an event. The next level is it results in either over-preparing or procrastination. For example, spending hours researching or avoidance. Uh, The next step would be after the event, you discount positive feedback from the audience. For example, minimizing the praise given. I think we've all done that. Um, And lastly, you have a fear of being exposed as a fraud. And so they say some contributing factors is depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, perfectionism. And so David wrote a really thoughtful question. And he said, how can one cut out imposter syndrome without overdeveloping their ego? I think a lot of times we associate any sort of, you know, self-love or or confidence with ego or that you can't have one or the other. Well, especially I think, I think for men in society too, you know, we're generally speaking, not supposed to have feelings of care and self self worth generally speaking and luckily society is changing their views on this that you know it's okay if men cry it's okay if men have intense emotions and so that goes along with that nick, nick cries for me every night i do i just know i i know that we look at the same moon and that gives me calm and peace it's like oh it's nine o'clock time for nick tears you're like giving a thoughtful answer. <laughs> Thanks. No, but I, I, that goes along with the you know I, idea of self-care, self-worth. I think it is tied together. Yeah, and obviously we're not psychologists, but you know we we've felt these things before, and you know I think there's a line, and it's not such it's not an either or thing, where you either need to be really self-deprecating and only focused on what you do wrong all the time, or you're an egomaniac. I think the ideal is being someone that is aware of where you are, is aware of what you do well, is confident in your abilities and you believe in yourself in the moment, but you're also 
humble enough to know that you don't know everything and that you can still learn and you can still absorb new information, but thinking that you need to be almost not believing in the positive parts of yourself or your playing to, to get there is, I can attest for personal experience, that doesn't really work very well. And it doesn't make it very fun to play. You know, I think, I think an important place to start from is to kind of have an analysis of if there was a scale of being an egomaniac and on the other side being absolutely self-deprecating about everything that you do, you know, placing yourself on that scale to begin with, where am I? Am, am I towards the ego part or am I part of the scale or am I more towards absolute self-deprecation no matter how good it is what I'm doing, um, objectively good? And, you know, once you kind of know where you're coming from, I think it's easy to know where you need to go. And I think that, first of all, I don't think it's set in stone. I think it moves. I think that in some moments, you obviously, we've had days where we play and go, you know what? I sound pretty darn good. And then the next day you play and it's like, my God, you know, I should go back to school and ask for my money back. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it, it's, it's so that's part of what we're dealing with is it's not a consistent thing that we're, our, first of all, our emotions aren't consistent and neither is our playing and all that stuff's going to be tied together. So that's the first step I would say. The second step is to, no matter what, like you were talking about not accepting positive feedback. So my, my, my dad was a really great and thoughtful man. And one thing that really bugged him and I, it, it's now, now bugs me is he really hated it when people said something nice to someone else and they shrugged it off and just said, Oh, well, you know, like if, Oh, I loved, I loved your performance and you go, Oh, it was okay. You know, I chipped that note in the fourth bar of the second movement and I was out of tune, you know, giving all these excuses of how it could be better. It, you know, my dad, when that would happen, you know, when I, when I was a angsty teenager, <laughs> he would, I, he would say something nice to me or, and I would, well, whatever dad. And, and he would go, no, you say, you say, thank you. Even if you don't mean it in the moment, I think this is really important for multiple reasons. I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell kind of a, a story that goes along those lines. I played a performance at the retreat and I was really, I was really genuinely unhappy with how I played. Like, and I think that's, it's okay. I remember. I, I'm generally unhappy with most of the time that I play, to be honest. This time I was very, very unhappy with how I played. And someone came up to me and they said, uh, one of the students at the trombone retreat and said, wow, great job, Nick. And I said, I said, thank you, but I said it in kind of a, Oh, thank you. Like kind of, I did shrug it off a little bit, but I did, I didn't complain or anything. But then that student came up to me later and talked to me and was talking about, Oh, you know, like I really liked the way you played. I loved your vibrato and I'd never heard this piece before. I, I bought it that night and it made me realize that number one, you don't know how your performance affects someone else. And th 100%. this is a huge part of performing is it's entertainment. It's, it's art. It's, it is good for the soul. It's good for the mind, all these things. And you don't know where someone else, where the listener is in their life. And you could really touch someone, even if you think you played terribly. And yes, we can do, do it better, but you know, if, if you totally shut someone down in their compliment, it kind of puts a black cloud over the performance. Absolutely. And so the, the, this all being said, it kind of goes under 
fake it until you make it sort of thing. If you're really like a down person about your own playing and have a lot of negative self-talk, I think if you just practice the idea of saying to yourself, that was good. You know, when it, when it is, maybe it's not where you want to be ultimately, but you are getting better. You played your etude better, your excerpt better, your solo better. You say to yourself, wow, good job. You really improved. Even if you don't really feel that, I think if you start building that self-talk and external talk to responding to compliments by just saying, oh, thank you. That means a lot. Even if you don't mean it at first, I think over time, your inner monologue will change and you'll have more appreciation for playing for an audience and that kind of sacred relationship. Yeah. And that inner monologue is, is the thing that we're fighting, right? But yeah, I love what you said. And and that's such an important lesson and we're all guilty of it. It's like, you feel like if someone compliments you after something that you did that you hated, you feel like if I, if I acknowledge it, it means I think I'm good. Or if I think that was good, you know, it's not, it's a perfect lesson. It's not about you. It's about their experience. If a little old lady comes up to you and they, they connected with something that you don't even know what they're feeling or connecting and they enjoyed it, let them enjoy it. It puts such a damper on it. If you're like, thanks. Yeah. Or or (laughs) worse. If you say, Oh, you know, like, I played it better. It's like, it's like, right. It's, it, it comes, it, you don't mean to, but it really is a little condescending. It's like that their opinion isn't as valued as yours. So right. even though exactly. the, the intent is to self-deprecate, you come across as more egotistical in a way because you're saying their opinion doesn't matter as much as yours and your opinion is more sophisticated than theirs. So it, it, it kind of has a double-edged sword. Right. And to get back to the question, you know, I think it depends on you and there's a danger in each end of the spectrum. If, you know, ask yourself if you're only telling yourself you sound great all the time for self-preservation, that could be dangerous because you might not ever be open to getting better. If you're constantly only focused on negative things, you're never going to appreciate and do in the moment all the good things you're doing. So I think a healthy balance of both And what the University of Waterloo Center for Teaching Excellence identifies strategies that can help combat imposter syndrome. A few things. Talk about it. Recognize that thoughts, feelings aren't facts. Accentuate the positive. Recognize that it's okay to make mistakes and ask others for help. Monitor and alter negative self-talk. Imagine positive outcomes rather than the worst case scenarios. Recognize and reward your accomplishments, strengths on a daily basis. Just one more thought uh, along these lines is um, this is something I do with all new students is when they play something, I'll say, and I do this, not just new students, but all my students. But one of the first things I do is they come in and play and I'll say, what went well, what didn't go well. And their response means a lot to me. And if they just say all the things that went poorly, that's not so great. If they said, oh, well, this went well, this one, it's like, okay, they're not being critical enough. So along with what you're saying is really run that self-diagnostic test. Yeah. And I think as a teacher, you can do that too. You can, you can always sense when someone's on either end of that spectrum and you kind of can kind of clue them in to that kind of side. And overall, just don't be a butthole. (laughs) Don't be a butthole. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. If you'd like to write a question for us or a topic for us to discuss, feel free. 
Follow us at Trombone Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and our website, tromboneretreat.com. Follow us on our new YouTube channel, Trombone Retreat. Also, feel free to shoot us an email at tromboneretreat at gmail.com as we love hearing from you. You can also follow Nick at BassTrombone444 on Instagram and me at js.vera on Instagram. And as always, retreat yourself. <laughs> <laughs>